together this morning as we, before we open God's Word together. Lord, we thank You. Uh, we thank You for this day. We thank You for this time that we have together. We thank You for the rain. We thank You for uh, the beauty of Your creation and the way that You renew it and the, the springtime and what comes with that. And we just thank You for all those things that point us to You. I pray this morning that as we open Your Word, as we uh, start to look at what You tell us and what You show us, that You would just uh, implant this in our hearts, that You would apply this to our lives, that You would show us Uh, exactly what you want us to see as we open your word. Uh, We just confess that we need you here moving freely in this place. Uh, We know that your spirit is the one that teaches and guides us and leads us into all truth. And so we pray that you would come and and do that for us this morning. Uh, We just confess that we are hopelessly lost without you. And so we just ask that you would do that today. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed, you may not have noticed today, if you haven't noticed before, uh, with the rain trying to get into the to church building, but there's new banners hanging out up here that we replaced recently. I don't know if you noticed those or not, or you saw those. But as you, as you come in, you see them, and the three banners say, uh, gather, and then grow, and then go. That's the heading on, on the three banners that are out there. And there's kind of corresponding verses that go with each one. And so when you look at gather, it talks about Hebrews 10, about let us uh, consider how to stir one another up to good, lo- uh, uh, good works, not neglecting to meet together. And so that picture of that we need to be uh, helping build one another up. And so that's the first one. And then you move to the second one and it talks about grow. And, and the verse there is from Colossians 1, 28. And it talks about teaching and and warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so growing up into a fullness of what Christ has called us to be as believers. And then the third one is, is go. And it's the Great Commission where Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so you see those three as you come in, those three kind of big pillars. You see this all the way through Scripture. And it struck me this week. I was out there walking. And I was kind of reading through them as I was walking. I was going over my sermon. I thought, you know, what we've been looking at in the book of Titus, and that's where we're going to be today, that passage I read for us just a minute ago on page 647, that's what we're going to look at this morning. But as we've been in Titus, we kind of see those big headings over what Paul is telling to Titus. Now, Titus, I said each week, if you haven't been here, let's just review. Titus is a young pastor on the island of Crete, and he's got a mess of a church there, a brand new church that's coming up that has all kinds of issues and things going on. And so he's teaching and he's exhorting and he's telling them. And Paul writes this letter to help Titus and to tell him how this church would grow up into a healthy church and what it's called to be. And he's giving him instructions on different things. And what struck me is those three signs we have out there about gather and grow and go. Uh, Sometimes we say it when we send out our emails. If you're on our email list about our missional community groups, we talk about the up and the in and the out. Right. Our relationship together, growing with God, going out to our world to make disciples. Same thing, same idea with both of those. And what struck me is a lot of what Paul is saying is exactly that as we're moving through Titus. Uh, If you were here last week, we talked about the importance of the body ministering to one another. Older women helping younger women. Uh, Paul says to Titus in chapter 2, right there in the middle of verse 7, he says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And so he's saying, model what you're saying you believe. Help one another in that. And that's really what we talk about when we talk about the gathering together. When we talk about the end, that we'd be helping one another to do that. And then when we talk about the growing, we talked about that really two weeks ago because Paul tells Titus, go and appoint godly men to be elders who can teach. 
And not only can they teach, they can rebuke bad doctrine. They can rebuke bad things, help to bring people up into a fullness of that. And that really corresponds with what we talked about two weeks ago that's out there on the signs. We talk about growing or we talk about our up relationship with God. That comes through hearing God's word and knowing it more fully and helping one another in that. And then the last part of go, it just kind of hits me where we are today. We're going to talk about today as Paul's dealt with leadership and then how we love each other and care for one another, then what it looks like to the world. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we've been, as we've been saying this, as going through Titus, Titus is really a wonderful picture of what discipleship looks like within the church, what a healthy church should look like. And so I keep saying this, but hopefully this will stick after a while. You'll get sick of me saying it. But when we say discipleship, what we mean by that is bringing every area of our lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so we're seeking to bring every part of our lives under what Jesus has told us, being obedient to him in every way. And so when we think about that in big picture, the entire world is in that process and somewhere, somewhere along that continuum. There are those that would reject Christ as Savior. They would say the Bible is not God's word and they would reject Christ. And so their discipleship is way over here in an area of still unbelief. Then there may be a new believer that comes to faith. And yes, I see that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus and I need salvation through what he's done for us. And there's still a lot of areas in their life that are not um, becoming obedient to Jesus. And then even the most mature believer still has areas that they're struggling with that we're trying to bring. And so it's a process. You see that continuum all the way through. And so but when you start to think of it that way, as you walk in the world and as you go out and you leave these doors, you're going to meet people who are all over the place in that process all along the way. Every single person you meet, they're either in unbelief or belief or growing in that belief or wherever they may be. And so what happens is there can become areas of contention in our culture because that's the case. If you're seeking to make disciples of Jesus, we want to make much of Jesus and see people come under his lordship in their lives. And they're rejecting that there can be some tension there. You see that in our world today. A lot of things we would say in our world today are adamantly opposed to what scripture says. Adamantly opposed to having Jesus be Lord of our lives in certain areas. And so that can be very difficult. It can be very difficult to walk that out in the world we live in. And so that's what I want us to look at and think about today, because I think Paul really points us to a picture of what it looks like to walk that out, being disciples of Jesus before the world and see it's what it looks like and how that is to be. And so uh, I remember uh, Mark Dever, who's a pastor up in Washington, D.C., wrote a book several years ago and he called it uh, The Church. It was just a, a book on the church and what the church is supposed to be. And then he said uh, the, the byline underneath it was the gospel made visible to the world. And so what he was talking about is the way that we, we live out the gospel before the world. And that's really what we're talking about. How do we live out being disciples of Jesus before the world, often in a world that's very hostile to that? And so what we're going to do this week and really next week, if you'll notice in your bulletin, it says uh, this is part one because we're going to go through it. Oftentimes I ask three questions or we have three points or three things that we look at. Well, there's five. Right, I've got five. I couldn't get it to three. And so that's why it ended up being two parts. And so really, this is where we're going today. What we're going to do is we're just going to look at what Paul says, and we're going to kind of set the scene of where they were in Crete, but where we are today as well. Because when you see what I'm talking about, you'll see we're in the exact same thing as they were. So we're going to set the scene, and then we're going to look at the ways that we miss living it out to the world. And then we're going to look at the ways that we are to do it, what it's to look like. And then we're going to look at the power in which we do it. And then lastly, why we should be really expectant to see God moving and doing great things. Now, it's a lot. 
right? I could have done it all together, but it would have been like an hour and a half sermon. And so I figured you would rather me break it into two and then we'll come back to the second half next week. So we're going to take those first three, right? Set the scene and then how we um, miss it and then how we're to do it. And so let's just jump straight in to setting the scene of what this looks like. And so look at chapter two in verse 11. So what Paul says in verse 11 there, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. And then verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what I want us to settle on and just stop and look at for just a second there as we set the scene is verse 11 and then verse 13. And the truth is we live in verse 12. We're in between those two. And that's what I mean by setting the scene. And so what I mean by that is verse 11. He says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what he's talking about is the first coming of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came, that God became incarnate. He came in the flesh and he stepped down into this earth and he lived and he walked for 30 some odd years, 2000 years ago in the Middle East. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, did his ministry all around that area for this little bit of time. And he came. And so Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And so through what Jesus did, he came and he lived the perfect life. And he did everything. He kept all God's laws perfectly. He did all of it. And then he got to the end of his life and he says, I will take your sin for you on myself. I will bear it on the cross and I will become your sacrifice that you can become reconciled to God. That's how we have salvation. I say this every week, but you just get used to it because I'm going to say it every week. We are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus Christ and nothing else. It's all what he does for us. And so the picture when he says he's appeared bringing salvation for all people by what Jesus has done, salvation is now offered for all people through faith in Christ. And so that's verse 11. Right? By the way, just as a side note, it says for all people. And you go, what does that mean? Does Jesus save all people by what he does? There's a couple ways you can look at that and both are good news. Uh, one, we could say all people is what Jesus says when he says, go make disciples, go make disciples of all nations. And so we say for all people, we mean all different ethnicities, all people all over the world. God is going to redeem some from every tribe, tongue, language all over the world, which is really awesome when you think about it. Like right now, this morning, as we gather together to worship, we have brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and in Korea and in Africa and all over the world that are gathering under the name of Jesus Christ and there are brothers and sisters in faith. And that is awesome. All people and all nations. And so we mean all people that way. But also I'd say we mean all people in that Jesus can redeem any type of person. And so if you sit here today and you hear you're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, it's all what Jesus does for you. You go, well, God doesn't know what I've done. Yes, he does. And he can cover it through what Jesus has done. And so it doesn't matter where you've been or the mistakes you've made. God can redeem all people, no matter what that is. And that is good news as well. And so we could say it both ways. Every tribe, tongue and nation and every sin that ever could have been committed, God can cover that by what he did in Christ. And so both of those are wonderful and great news. And so that's verse 11. But then when you look at verse 13, look at what Paul says in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's talking about Jesus coming back again. That Jesus is going to return and he's going to set all things right. When Jesus comes, 
He's going to bring with him the power that's going to regenerate the entire universe, all of it, and make it perfect. And so we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. We're going to see it in full glory, what God is going to do. And so the the coming of he's going to return. And so we live in the in-between. Jesus has come and offered salvation to all people through faith in him, but we await for his second coming. And so theologians often like to say we live in the already but not yet. If you've ever heard that before. What we mean by that is salvation has already been purchased in Jesus. Jesus has already defeated sin and death. It is done, bought, paid for, finished. He's already won. I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus is sitting on his throne reigning right now. Nothing is out of his control. He is in control. He is reigning on his throne. It's already happened. We know the end. We've already won. Jesus has already finished it. The already. Then not yet, as he ascends to heaven, he says, go make disciples of all nations. He says, I'm coming back and I'm going to bring it to fullness. But for a time, I'm going to allow this to go on. So go make disciples of all nations. That's where we are. And so when I say setting the scene of where we are, the already and the not yet, we're awaiting his return with great hope, the appearing of the glory of our Savior, Jesus. And that's where we live right now. The already knowing that he's in full control, the power is there to go out and make disciples, but we're waiting for the fullness when he returns, the already and not yet. And so that's where we are. And then in verse 12, Paul talks about what it looks like to live in between those two. And that's kind of where we're going this morning. But we have to set the theme before we get there. And so that's kind of setting the scene. And so I want us to think about uh, now, how do we live in that? And so Paul writing to Crete, as I mentioned just briefly a second ago, Crete's a mess. Uh, we keep, I keep saying this each week, but you know the term Cretan because of Crete, right? They were a bunch of Cretans. They were a mess. And there were all kinds of things going on. And so he's writing to help uh, bring this into order. How does this look? What does this look like as a church? And so as he's writing, what we see kind of laid out here is Paul saying some things. You need to not do these things and do these things. And I think when he says not do these things, the the connotation there is they were doing those things. (laughs) They were living it out this way. And so that's why I want us to think about how we miss it. Because a lot of the things Paul says we're still struggling with today on how we miss living it out. And so as we think about how do we miss it, look at verse 12 there, right? The 2.12, right before uh, what we just looked at. And so it says, uh, God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. And so he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And I think the picture in Crete would certainly be the case. We also see it throughout the New Testament. This is something that came up a bunch. Uh, You saw people, as the gospel is proclaimed, you are saved by faith alone, grace alone, Christ. It's all Jesus. And then in our sinful hearts we go, oh yeah, it's all Jesus. So I can do whatever I want. I can now just go live it up because Jesus is going to cover all of it in his grace. And so we go and we run off and do. And I think part of that's what's happening in Crete. We certainly saw that in Corinth when Paul writes the letters to the Corinthians, getting drunk as they come to celebrate communion, those kind of things happening, just doing whatever they wanted. Grace will cover it. And so let's just do these things. There's a, 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 a term that was coined around the time of the Reformation called antinomianism. You ever heard that before? If you didn't, that's OK. You go, great. That means nothing to me. It means against the law. 
And what came up was, we don't have to follow the law anymore because it's all grace, and so we can do whatever we want. And that was one of the uh, attacks on the Reformation. When the Reformation came back to saying it's faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, it's all Jesus. People go, well, that will lead people to sin more. And they quickly said, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. That's not the case. That's not what we're supposed to be. That's not what we're called to. But that can happen, and that pops up from time. It still pops up today in the church. It certainly was happening in the New Testament because Paul even poses this as a rhetorical question in Romans chapter 6. Right? Romans 6, 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He asks the question, should we just keep sinning because then there'll be more grace? Right? That, that's our sinful heart saying that. I'll just keep sinning and God will keep redeeming it and so it'll be more grace and God will get the glory. Right? Is that the way we're supposed to go about it? Well, he answers it in verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He says, no. That's not what it looks like. We can't go back to that. He's telling them here, you can't go back to looking like that. You, you, you're not to uh, walk in ungodliness and worldly passions. He says you're supposed to ren- uh, renounce those things. And so you see that all the way through in the New Testament. I would say you even see it today. We live in a time right now, and this is a good thing, by the way. I would put myself in this camp. We live in a time where there's a great uh, resurgence of talking about being gospel-centered. That is making much of the good news of what Jesus has done. It's all Jesus. We want to be Christ-centered in our preaching. We seek to do that every week. Point you to the importance of what Jesus has done. And when we start to talk about grace and we talk about gospel-centered and Christ-centered and those things, what can happen is we kind of forget obedience. We can start talking about grace so much that we swing way over here and we're all about that and we forget that we're supposed to renounce ungodliness. It happens today. It happens all the time. And it's like you start to... And, and, and throughout Christianity, you'll see swings back and forth. It's all grace. And then people start to just do whatever they want. Well, Jesus covers it all. He does. But when we start to swing over here and then we go, no, 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 you've got to do these things. And then we swing back and it becomes very law oriented and we go back and forth. And so you see that here as well. And so there's a, there's a picture in Scripture. It's interesting that it, it just lined up our Sunday school class this morning. These things go together. God does this all the time. Things that you're planning and then the exact same thing gets said from a different place. And so uh, the picture, though, is, is scripturally is that when you have a faith, a saving faith, it will change your affections. It will begin to change what you care about and what you want. God will begin to remake you. And so it's not just I'll claim grace and then I can do whatever I want. He begins to change you. And it has to be both. And so when we look at what it's not, it's not just saying grace will abound, so let's keep on sinning. He says renounce those things. But when we can swing to the other thing, the other end, that's what I was just talking about, we'll swing back and then we'll make it all works. Look at what happens in verse 2 of chapter 3. I'll read 1 and 2 together just for the context. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Connotation there, there's a lot of uh, quarreling going on, a lot of speaking evil of one another, a lot of fighting about different things. But then look at what happens there towards the end of the chapter, or at the end of 3 there in verse 9 as well. He says, but then also to avoid foolish controversies, 
genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division and warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. And so I want you to think about this picture together of what happens. We can swing back to the other side and we can say, well, let's study Scripture and let's get these things and let's nail them down and let's become really obedient. And we should be obedient. I'm not making light of that at all. But then we become like the morality police. Now it's our job to enforce this on every person that we see, whether they're believers or not. And we're going to descend on them and get all these things. And then we're going to argue about different things. You see it a lot of times in the church. We think maturity becomes as we grow and we know, then we get together and we start to argue. Right? Look at what I know. What happens, and I think what can happen, is we can start to get uh, into like, look at how smart I am. Right? This happens a lot in seminary. When I was in seminary, I had a lot of good friends, and you get together and you argue and debate over different theologies, and what about this verse, and what about this word, and what about this conjunction. And, and you should be seeking, the, the scriptures tell us, Paul tells Timothy, to study yourself approved, that you're rightly handling God's word, you're supposed to study it, you're supposed to know the context, you're supposed to know what it means. But what can happen, again, it's our sinful heart when it comes to play. We start to make it all about what I know. And so I can tell people what I know, and I can tell you what you don't know, and I can start to look down on this person, and I can, and we start to do that. I had a good friend who was really, uh, I used to meet with five guys for breakfast in seminary, and there was one guy that would come every week, and he wanted to argue with us. And we were all looking at him like, what is this? You know, every week, he was just, and he'd get there like angry, like he was ready to go, like, I'm going to prove to you guys you're wrong here, and, and you're just kind of... And over the next couple of years, God completely worked in his heart and changed it and what happened. But what was going on at the beginning is he got to center and he wanted to know answers so he could beat people up with it. And that's our sinful heart can start to slip into that. And I see that kind of coming out when you read verse 9 when Paul says, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. When we start to become angry and fighting and I want to tell you how wrong you are and it becomes those kind of things. We've kind of missed the point. And so when we think about that picture, how we can swing back and forth, yes, we should be studying God's word. We say, you're never going to hear me say from this pulpit and this that doctrine is unimportant. I talk about that a lot. What you believe affects how you live and it's very important. And so I'm not going to say that's not the case. But I want you to think about why do we say that often? Why do we continually tell you to be reading your Bible? Spend time in the Word. Go this week and be filled up as you spend time and you seek God and you seek Him in His Word. Why do we say, is it so that you can have all the answers and you can win arguments? Is that why we're telling you to do that? <clears throat> go read your Bible and then go beat up your neighbor with it. No, absolutely not. Right? You go and you read your Bible and you spend because it's the way God has revealed Himself to us and it's the way we know Him. It's the way we grow in our relationship with Him. It's how we see Him more clearly. By knowing who He is and the way He's revealed Himself to us. It's how we see Him. And when we make it other things, we completely miss it. And so we can miss it on both ends of the spectrum. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. And so we get to do whatever we want. No, not exactly. Or we swing way to the other side. And I'm going to study and I'm going to read and I'm going to know all the answers. And I'm going to do this so I can beat everybody up and tell them how... Well, not, it's somewhere in the middle. 
It's living out of grace and then seeking God and doing that. And that's what we're going to look at of what it does look like. And say that's the way we miss it on both ends of the spectrum. We can swing back and forth to those. And what it is is our sinful heart. Our sinful heart wants to make it all about what I know. Our sinful heart says, I want to live out the passions of my flesh and just do these things and God will cover it later. Both of those is our own sinfulness that leads us to miss on both ends. So when we think about <clears throat> what it's not, it's, it's that uh, cheap grace. It's the way I would say it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to talk about that. He was a pastor in Germany around the time of World War II. And he'd talk about that. We don't want to cheapen uh, Christ's sacrifice by this cheap grace. Oh, he'll cover it so I can do whatever I want. And so we don't want to miss it that way. But then we don't want to turn it into a, a legalistic, moralistic, we're, we're forcing this down people's throats and that's the way it looks. And so then the question becomes, what does it look like? What are we to be doing? How are we to live this out? And so look at what he says positively here. Go back to verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then he says, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Right? Self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Or then you go to verse 1 of chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers, authorities, be obedient, and be ready for every good work. Again, he talks about the importance of good works. And then verse 8 of chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so he talks about godly lives and be ready to do good works. And then he says it again. Uh, devoting ourselves to good works. And so it starts to get this picture of you're supposed to seek to do good. You're supposed to live godly lives. And so here's again how our heart will twist that. All along the way, there's these pitfalls of our sinful heart that wants to twist it into something else. What we want to then do is we say, well, godly lives, good works, we're supposed to be devoted to that. And so we go, that's the way God accepts me. I do good works. If I do these well enough, then God will keep loving me. Right? You ever start to go there? You ever start to have that creep into your heart? Right? I, I did the quiet time this morning and I prayed a lot, and so God's really pleased with me. Right? We start to make it into works. I do good works so that God accepts me. But look carefully at what he says here. Make sure that we're so clear on how this works. That's not how it works. Because look at what he says every step of the way here. Go back to 11, to 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus has come and done what you couldn't do for you. He's appeared. He's brought you salvation in what he's done. And then he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to begin to do good works. Do you see the order? Faith in what Jesus has done, and then you start to live out of that. It's not opposite. It's not you do good works and then God goes, okay, he's pretty good, I'll accept him. No, 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 Jesus comes and does it for you, all faith, all him, and then you begin to live out of that. You see that? He says it over and over. You see the same thing in verse 14. Who gave himself, Jesus, he's talking about, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see the order again? He saves us. Then he begins to change us and then purify us and then we begin to do good works out of an overflow of what he's done for it. You see the order. We always want to switch that because we want to make it about us instead of about what God's done for us. Look again in verse 4. Verse 3, actually. 3, 3. 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But then listen to what he says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Right? Here we are, a mess, following all our stuff, and then Jesus shows up and saves us. Right? And then the next verse, just in case you aren't clear, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. He didn't come down and go, that guy's doing pretty good, so I'll save him. No, that guy was uh, a malice, envy, hating others. Right? That's us, apart from Jesus. And so he shows up and he saves us by no doing of our own. And he does that. He brings us in, saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know what he's saying? You got saved because the Holy Spirit graciously came down and opened your eyes to see Jesus and he saved you. And it's not because you're good. And it's not because of your good works. And you don't do good works so that'll save you. It's the other way around. Then he says in verse 8, look at how clearly he says this. The saying is trustworthy and I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed, already believing, in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see the order. You get saved and you see who Jesus is and what he's done and then you begin to live out the good works. And so it's always going to be faith leads to a change of your affections and then your life changes. If not, you try to be really good and then God goes, okay, I'll, I'll not save you. That's the way we want to make it. And so when we talk about what does it look like, what does it look like to live godly lives and to do good works, it's always going to be of a heart of faith in what Christ has done for us. It has to be. It's the only way it works because we can't do it on our own. And so then the question becomes, what does that look like? What does it look like to live out of a heart of good works that's born from faith, not because I'm working to be accepted? And he tells us, he tells us in a couple of different places here. Look at verse two, chapter three, verse two, right? to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then he tells you, be ready for good works. This is what it looks like. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. It's a pretty good description. Why is that? Why is that a pretty good description? Because when I'm living out of faith that it's all Jesus and what he's done for me and nothing else, how can I look down on anyone? I can't. Because I see so clearly my own sin that I was uh, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. He did it all for me. The only reason I want to do anything good is because he came down and graciously opened my eyes and began to change me. And so there's no place for me to look down on other people. There's no place for me to trample all over the blood of Jesus and say, I'm just going to sin more because they'll cover it. And the reason is I know what it cost him. He laid down his life for me when I was sinful, running from him, doing all these things. He did it. For me, so how dare I go, well, that means I can just sin all I want. And when I see that, when true faith happens, it cuts off both ends. There's no place for me to walk around and go, let me tell you what I know. Right? Well, if I do, if I say that to you, what I know is I'm a sinful man that has no 
hope on my own, and it's all Jesus. That's what I know. It's all I got. And so when we see both sides, it cuts them off, both. And so good works become to look like uh, being kind and gracious and loving towards people. That's what it starts to look like. Look at what he says in uh, verse 8 and 9. The saying is trustworthy and I insist on these things. He says, devote yourself to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Avoid controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels. And for people that want to fight about everything. He says, just don't go there. What good works look like? It's loving people where they are. It's being the face of Christ to them. What did Jesus do for you? He came and saved you even though you didn't deserve it. He poured his grace and mercy out when you were a sinful mess. And so that's what it looks like to live a godly life, to, to reflect who he is. And so we talk about all the ways we miss it. I feel like it's a lot simpler than we make it. We, we're supposed to be like Jesus. We're supposed to love people right where they are and walk with them graciously, kindly, doing those things that he's called us to. And so the picture here of what we are to be doing is we're supposed to look like Jesus. And the truth is, in our world today, that can be really hard. Because when you proclaim the truth of what Scripture says and you seek to be obedient to Jesus in every area of your life, people are going to be ugly. So that's crazy. Are you serious? And so then you have this opportunity. Do I get angry? Do I quarrel? Or do I just love them and be kind and patient the way Christ has been to me? And that's what it looks like. And I tell you, it's not easy. It's not like, oh, this is great. Now you get to go and people will be rough with you when you say that. But you get the opportunity to show what Christ did for us. And so we're going to end there, but we're going to talk about this next week. And I'll just say this as we, as we finish. Next week we're going to talk about the power in which we do that. And why we should be expectant to see God moving and doing great things in all different ways. And that's in verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. And I'm just going to tell you, that's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Like, I so wanted to get to that today. But I was like, I'm going to wait because I love that so much, what that says. And what it tells us. And the excitement that it should bring seeing what God's doing and how he's doing it. And how he's going to work in us and through us. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. In fact, I was just reading that over and over all week. And I'll just challenge you as we come to next week. One, if you're here this week, please come back. We want to hear the, the, the fullness of how we do that and what that looks like. But I'm just going to challenge you. I did this all week. I worked on memorizing that passage and going back to it and meditating on it. I would wake up in the middle of the night. And I would say, I would literally wake up and say, he saved us, not by works done in righteousness. I go, thank you, God. Every day, all week, I kept waking up. I go, oh, yes. It's not what I've done. It's what Jesus has done. It's all Him. But His grace appeared through His mercy, through His Spirit moving, just overwhelmed with the, what that means for us. That picture that's there, why that we can live this out and why that we want to live this out and what he's doing. So I'm sorry, I'm, that's the preview for next week. I'm starting to preach next week. We're just going to stop there, but let's pray and then we'll, we'll come and we'll sing again and take communion together. Lord, we thank you.
We do thank you for the beautiful picture of your marvelous grace. That we are so undeserving in so many ways that we ignore you, that we run from you, that we fall back into the passions of our flesh, but yet you are gracious and merciful, that you call us to repentance, you show us clearly how much you love us, and we thank you for that. I pray that we'd see that more clearly today than we ever have before, that you just impress that upon our hearts, the great love that you have for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Come to the time of worship through our giving.